0: You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon so near and yet so far, has said, The Christian, according to the New Testament, is someone who can say something like this, I was, I am. The historic term for this was conversion, which suggests some sort of transformation from one thing or state into another, In the late 20th century, the preferred terminology was that of being born again. Whatever the terminology used, the reality being conveyed is that in coming to follow Jesus, something substantial has changed about the person as a consequence of this new faith commitment. The terms for this movement are varied in the New Testament. First century Judaism used the term proselytas, from which we get the word proselyte. A proselytos was a Gentile person who had become a permanent resident alien in Israel. So when a Gentile came to worship the Jewish God exclusively, that person was called a proselytos. Proselytas translated the Hebrew word ger. This is not the word generally used for a convert to Christianity, though, in the New Testament. When a person became a Christian, two words were used generally to describe their movement. The first, which can be found in First Timothy 3, verse 6, is neophytas. We get the word neophyte from this word, and it was an agricultural term, meaning newly planted. The other term, sometimes translated convert in the New Testament, can be found in Romans chapter 16, verse 5. It is the term aparche, which is a sacrificial term. Aparche referred to the first fruits that the law of Moses required to be offered to God. So, the Apostle Paul would sometimes call the first convert in a city or region the aparche, the first fruits. The phrase more directly associated with Jesus himself is found in John 3, 3 and is often translated born again. That's where the late 20th century phraseology came from. But of course, Jesus didn't say born again exactly. The Greek phrase is genethe anothen which means more literally, born from above. So Jesus' words in John were well-translated by the New Revised Standard Version. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Later in verse 8 of the same chapter of John, Jesus will call this being born of the Spirit. And the sense of the two phrases is the same. To enter the kingdom of God, something akin to birth has to take place in the person. And the source of this birth is not the mechanisms of the earth, but rather the spirit. Hence, being born from above or born of the spirit. But what does this mean? There's little doubt in the immediate context of John that bodily resurrection from the dead is in primary view for Jesus. However, the transformation implied is not simply reserved for the life to come. As our passage in Ephesians demonstrates, as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, to be a Christian, one must be able to say, I was, I am. After his opening barachot, uh, Confessions of God's Blessedness, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14, through 14, which we discussed last week, Paul goes on, beginning in verse 15, to explain the grounding and content of his prayers for the Ephesian Christians. The grounding, or foundation, of Paul's prayer is rooted in the fruit he sees the Ephesian Christians bearing. Paul has heard of their faith, their trust in Jesus, and in their love for other believers, chesed, loyalty. Some ancient manuscripts do not include the comment about love, but whether Paul said it explicitly at the onset here or not, Paul's expectation that true Christians would express chesed toward one another is clear throughout the remainder of the letter. Then Paul goes on, as he does in so many letters, to explain what he asks God to grant them when he prays for them. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. Paul asked God specifically for wisdom and revelation in proportion with their growing knowledge of him. Paul did not simply ask for the Ephesian people to gain knowledge. It was a specific knowledge Paul had in mind. Paul desired them to grow in knowledge of God, and as they grew in that knowledge, that God would provide them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Again, the spirit language is similar to that of Jesus. And Paul affirms again that the birth, the transformation, the new way of living and thinking and moving that is the inheritance of all who follow Jesus comes by means of the spirit. Now, revelation usually refers to the uncovering of mysteries. In Ephesians, the mystery... That Paul's referring to is the bringing together of true Israel and Gentiles into one body. We started to talk about that last week, and we'll have a lot to say about it during this series. That's the ecclesiology question that informs much of the book. But in this discussion, I want to focus on Paul's request for wisdom. Wisdom in the First Testament is the ability to know when and how to use the knowledge one has acquired. One can gain much knowledge from studying the natural world, from studying history, from studying the writings of the wise, and even from reading and studying the Christian scriptures. But knowledge alone in the Bible is inadequate, sometimes even perilous, as Adam and Eve learned from their experience with the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. Contextless knowledge is not the desire of Paul for these Christians. Paul wants them to grow in knowledge of God and to be given a spirit of discernment that would allow them to know when and how this knowledge applies to a given moment. In short, Paul is requesting the kind of godly wisdom which calls out to the simple in Proverbs chapter 8, a great passage to read if you want more about what wisdom is. Now in verses 20 through 23 of our text here in Ephesians, Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians that this knowledge, wisdom, and revelation is rooted in God's activity in the world through the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And Paul reminds the Ephesians that it is Jesus who has been given all authority in heaven and in earth and under under whose lordship and kingdom those who call themselves Christians live. And this is essential for Paul. Knowledge, wisdom, revelation, and power, all terms used in this text, are terms which require context to be meaningful. Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians, and by extension, all who follow Jesus, that the context in which the Christian life is lived is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge we seek is knowledge of God in Him. The wisdom we require is not wisdom to navigate the kingdoms of this world, but His kingdom. The revelation we seek is not the uncovering of earthly mysteries, but the uncovering of the mysteries of God. And the power at work in us is not the power that the fleshly and worldly desire, but the power of God to be his people in the world. And this naturally leads Paul to a proclamation to which Martin Lloyd-Jones is indebted. You were, now you are. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. We were dead through the lives we lived outside of God's kingdom and outside of the lordship of Jesus over us. We were dead because we lived according to the principles of the world and the worldly. We were dead because we lived by our own consciences and our own sense of right and wrong. We were dead because we sought knowledge and wisdom and revelation, but not knowledge of God and wisdom and revelation sourced in the Spirit of God. We were governed by false spirits, by false gods, and by our own passions. That is who we were. But that is not who we are if we have come truly to follow Jesus. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2 in Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Quite apart from human merit, works, or effort, God made a way in Jesus from what we were in the world to who we are in him. It is God who did this, so it is not by works. No human made the road from death to life. No human discovered the secret entrance to the kingdom of God. God himself did this by grace. God himself became flesh in the person of Jesus. God himself made war against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms and conquered them in the flesh of Jesus. God himself, while we were still sinners, trailblazed the road out of slavery to sin and death. And so Paul declares in these verses that no human can boast about the road from, which, from what we were, To what we are. That is God's work alone. For those who truly place faith in Jesus and trust Him enough to submit to Him and to His teachings as Lord and God, we are now what He has made us. And what has He made us? We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. We were dead. Now we live. We did live according to the principles and principalities of this world. Now we live under the lordship and teachings of Jesus. We did follow the spiritual forces of evil. We now follow the spirit of God. We did submit to the desires of our flesh and were on a road to destruction. We now submit to the desires of God and are on a road to eternal life. I was... I am, we were, we are. Is this true for you? If you know that it is not, I invite you to follow Jesus today. How do you begin? Give me a moment and I'll answer that question. If you are not sure if this is true for you and you want to be sure, I pray you might take the following advice. Gain access to a Bible and find the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 and read chapters 5, 6, and 7. And ask yourself, Is the Spirit by which I live in this world this Spirit? The Spirit I see the ideas, the concepts, the values that I see expressed by Jesus in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, is this the spirit by which I live in this world? When I listen to Jesus, do I recognize that he has the authority to tell me these things and that I have the responsibility to trust him enough to live as he has asked me to live? If the answer to either or both of these questions is no, then you have not yet followed Jesus. We are saved by our faith, by our trust in Jesus. Do you trust him enough to live as he has asked you to live, as he's invited you to live? So, now you know. What should you do? If what you see in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and this is just the beginning, is not what you are seeking, then it is time to admit that you are not seeking Jesus. You may be seeking a better life or better circumstances or better relationships. You may be seeking security or a way to start over. You may even be seeking forgiveness or eternal life. But seeking these things is not the same as seeking the one true God and his kingdom. If you are not seeking a kingdom that operates the way Jesus described the kingdom of God, then you are seeking another kingdom. It's time to be honest with yourself and stop pretending you're a Christian or interested in Christianity. But if what you seek and what you see in Matthew 5-7 through is what you are seeking, and if the world as Jesus has described it and life the way Jesus lived it is your heart's desire... If the God revealed in Christian scripture is the God you desire to encounter with all your heart, then the way to him is laid out before you in the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. How might you begin? Begin by calling out into the heavens, right into the air around you, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus. Confess your sin your rebellion before him, and tell him that from this day forward, Jesus is your Lord and rightful King. Then begin to read the Christian scriptures. I would suggest reading the Gospels first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then go back and read the Old Testament, the first 39 books. Then read the Gospels again, and then read the rest of the New Testament. It will take a while. But as long as it takes, there is no other way to learn about this God and who he is. And if you are truly seeking him, you must find him where he has made himself available to be known. And all the while, find at least two or three others who are also seeking, who you are seeking, and meet together regularly to encourage one another on the journey. If you can find a church hungry for new life, then all the better but you need to walk with at least two or three others. The journey with Jesus is not solitary. It's always taken with another. May the Lord hear your prayer today. And for those who can say, I was, I am, may he bless you with a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you grow in your knowledge of Jesus. Amen.